Recorded live. Scuba Obsessed is a weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba in the news. Obsessed episode 114 was recorded live May 3rd, 2012. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. Here are some of the articles we're going to have in the news this week. We have uh, celebrity scuba divers, uh, giant shrimp, and uh, Permits for Divers. Before we get started, I'd like to welcome my co-host for this week, Jim Schultz. How you doing today, Jim? I'm just fine, Darren. Thank you. It's nice to be back on the line with you. Great, great. Love to have you guys on. And then Mac is uh, AWOL for whatever reason. We'll, we'll blame the weather, but you know he's probably playing hooky. Either that or you got to dive in. Well, could be any of the above with Mac. So what we're going to do is we're going to start off with Scuba in the News. For all of you in the chat room, thank you for coming. And you're going to get a, a sneak peek to the articles. We'll send the links, paste them in. And we also have Dave in the chat room tonight. Must must not have any cl- classes, huh, Dave? First one up is we have some, uh, yeah, maybe this will be a new segment we'll do, but celebrity scuba divers. Uh, yeah, we all know that uh, James Cameron does diving, but uh, there's other people who, who take it up as a sport. It, it seems to be to me that scuba diving is becoming more popular or more people are admitting to doing it. Uh, this first one, if you're in the high-tech field, and it always, to me, has seemed that uh, people in technology fields tend to be drawn towards diving. But the uh, chief operating officer for Zanga, John Shepard, is actually a scuba diver. You, you Jim, you aware of uh, who Zanga is? Yeah, they're the ones that make the uh, write or own the programs that are so popular on Facebook, Words with Friends and a Farmville and a bunch of other those uh, games on Internet games that... Uh, I will admit I just got hooked on Words with Friends. Uh-oh. Yeah, Words with Friends, that's actually a pretty good one. The tough thing I had with Words with Friends is I had too many games going. I think at one point I had about 12 or 13, and it just got to be so much. And then I had uh, my mother-in-law doesn't quite get the idea that it's not like a regular board game where you sit down and play. So if you don't move quick enough, she'll actually call you up on the phone and tell you to do <laughs> the next play. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so. uh, some of mine are, you know, one play a night, maybe two plays a night with people going back and forth. But, you know, it's uh, something going on while I've got the TV on in the background. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I kind of go in waves. I'll, I'll go for six months to a year and not play any of them, and then all of a sudden I'll get sucked in. I'm always a sucker for uh, helping somebody else out. So the people send me the request. I need I need gold. I need lead. Whatever the game is is requiring, and I'll start doing that and get sucked in. My 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 newest Danga hook has been uh, Castleville. And I think my wife's playing that. I haven't gotten into that. If words with friends, I thought you know that's that could be educational. Cause mm-hmm. My spelling is so atrocious to begin with, as you can tell by all my comments or posts in the <laughs> chat room. Well, the nice thing about uh, those games is they correct your spelling for you. So, you know, it used to be you'd, you'd put words out on, uh, say, you're playing Scrabble. Uh, people would fight with you, and you'd have to break out the dictionary. Now you 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 are save that shame because it will warn you when you haven't made a word. Well, my combination, and when people ask me, how do you spell that? You know, that's how I spell it. It may not be the way the rest of the world spells it, but that's how I spell it. Uh-huh. Oh, wait, here's Mac. We have a Mac? All right. Hello? Hey? Yeah, we're on. 
Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, no. I mean, it's a little stormy here, but not terrible. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll watch for you pop on and we'll join you in. Uh, Jim did. Okay. Bye. So that was one half of the conversation you, you heard. Uh, Mac says that it's storming like crazy at his house, so he's got everything electronic off. And he says that when things calm down, he'll jump on the show. Yeah, about the time he jumps on, about the time I'll lose power. Yeah, so we'll, we'll just it'll be like tag team, like wrestling. Okay. Okay. So, uh, but uh, Zanga. So there. So there's uh, somebody who does Zanga. It was is part of their financial statement. They were talking about uh, you know all the the risky sports and stuff. And he said he didn't have anything crazy other than scuba diving. And then the next celebrity that we had was uh, actually one of my favorites. Don't tell my wife, but you know it's one of those people who you know, you'd have a secret crush on. You know, the store must be getting closer. Internet's slowing down. And this was uh, this came out on the Tonight Show. Uh, Cameron Diaz uh, was on with Jay Leno on Tuesday, and uh, the uh, something about Mary actress was talking about she was scuba diving in Mexico off Cozumel with her pals, and she decided to get up and close get up close and personal with a massive grouper. Uh, she says it was probably the size of a Volkswagen Beetle or Bug, and he's down there and he has these big lips or something. And somebody said, "Oh, you should pet him." She says, I'm rubbing his lip, and I'm like, oh, my God, this is amazing. I'm looking to his eyes. We're having that whole moment, and all of a sudden it inhaled, and I go flying inside. The only thing that stopped me was literally my neck. I'm like inside this fish. I'm looking at him. He's looking at me, and like, well, what's going to happen now? And he spits me out. I go flying backwards. I have a scuba tank on and everything, and I'm like rolling backwards in the water. It was really good times. You know, she is quite a dish. Yes. I mean, I I hit him some. But I just thought that Grouper maybe, you know. Yeah, yeah, he 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 might have been attracted. Yeah. Might have... Yeah. That's now, have, have you heard I of think... that before? Somebody being sucked in by a Grouper? Um, closest thing I can remember is Jonah in the belly of a whale. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of on the similar lines. When I went snorkeling uh, with myself and actually uh, Jim Kleeman and his wife, were, we were all together snorkeling down in Mexico, and we came up near a grouper and those things are massive so it is not it, it seems like it's possible uh to get sucked in by one so there's another celebrity cameron diaz is a scuba diver yep celebrity divers celebrity divers it's 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 a thing you know and since we're on with groupers grouper friendly restaurants are getting certificates this one is out of uh, malta today a list is going to be published with a scheme that will be regulated through a certification process. This is uh, being proposed as a grouper action plan, the certification scheme for restaurants sourced by sustainable fishing practice. This will encourage restaurants to buy unharpooned and correctly sized specimen. They will publish a list uh, through a certification process. The dusky grouper, which can live up to 50 years and reach a weight of 35 kilograms, lives in rocky coastal Bottoms of the Mediterranean Sea is vulnerability is a result of biological characteristics of slow-growth creature, which inverts sex when it reaches 12 years of age, which inverts sex. I think that means they change. Oh, okay. Yeah, some of the fish will do that. I was trying to figure out what inverting sex was. It's probably one of those things you don't want to Google. Dave will post pictures for us. Oh, Dave's got pictures of inverted sex. Uh, the dental giant is a target of many arsenal sports fishing activities as well as recreational scuba and free diving. In 2006, groupers were the fifth most caught species of local fish. 
They said it's particularly at risk locally unless the population is directly protected by some form of regulation, like closed seasons, moratoriums and marine protected areas, and other forms of fishing restriction. The action plan is based on a three-year period program. Four marine areas of special interest include filfa, may be set up and studied further as potential sites for grouper conservation. Uh, to me, this just makes sense. I mean, we, we've already got seasons and limits uh, throughout the U.S. on many species of fish, so I'm not. I'm, I'm actually kind of surprised that they're just now considering this. But uh, yeah, they, you know, if you got to watch out for overfishing, and you know, there's plenty until there's none. Right. Yeah, I can. I can remember hearing stories, and or at least in school books, where there were certain types of fish that were so abundant they said you could just about walk across the water on them. And then next one is uh, kind of a take on laser beams. That was a very interesting story. Yeah, I, I really was intrigued by that one. They put a clamp, testing a clamping device, and so they put the clamp on the fin of the shark and put laser beams on it just so they could watch the shark and how it would swim and act and everything else, which it was neat in itself. But then when they get to the very end of the article, they talk about how there's a concern that the uh, sharks may actually be smart enough to figure out how to use the laser beam to its advantage. Ooh. Hmm. Yeah, that's what he says. He says if there was a way for sharks that could operate the laser on its own accord, it would use it against humans. We wouldn't even attempt this. Yeah, it's one thing when you're standing around, all of a sudden you see a laser beam on your chest. You know, that's not enough to scare the bejesus out of you. But imagine diving and all of a sudden seeing a laser beam pointed at you. It could uh, curtail a little bit of shark finning. Imagine if you uh, bring a shark up on a line and you're getting ready to get the fin and he zaps you one. Uh, At least give him a fighting chance. Now, 50 uh, milliwatt lasers are what they were using. And as you said, they were uh, testing uh, this clamping device. It's a, it's an interesting article. Yeah, he said uh, they stressed that the, exper- the experiment posed no threat to the shark at all. The new clamp is designed to be non-invasive as possible. After all, he does have the credentials to back up his claim. Uh, let's see, what was his, what was his credentials? Huh? But I'm I'm for it. I mean, sharks and laser beams. What's cooler than that? And then it's definitely definitely different. In that same vein, we have giant shrimp. Which sounds like it should be a punchline to the bad scuba joke, but giant cannibal shrimp more than a foot long invade waters off the Gulf Coast. It's another invasive species. The tiger shrimp are native to Asia, uh, and there have been more sightings in recent years. The prawns are known to grow to be the size of lobsters and eat small shrimp. The black and white shrimp can grow 13 inches long and weigh a quarter pound compared to 8 inches, and a bit over an ounce for domestic white, brown, and pink shrimp. Uh, they fear the tigers are going to bring disease and competition for the native shrimp. However, they can be eaten by humans. Oh, here we got Mac. We'll, we'll bring him on. 13-inch 13, 13 tiger shrimp. Asian carp, Asian mussels, Asian shrimp. It, you know, it sounds like a conspiracy to me. It's like we're it's like maybe it's before the uh, invasion you know, of, of humans. They, they get all their local delicacies over here and growing, and then they come and you there, Mac? Okay, I went wireless. So, so the storm hasn't blown you away yet? Oh, it's out there still, still violent. That's why Sharon said get on the iPad and try uh, Skype that way. Oh, there you oh, go. That's pretty smart. Interesting. Your wife is so smart. I know. It. It's it's almost revolting. She must have gotten smarter after she married you. <laughs> that was a survival skill. <laughs> <laughs> Good point, Darren. Good point. 
So how far along are you guys at? We're at the uh, your favorite topic, invasive species. The, we have the giant shrimp. You miss the sharks with lasers. Ah. Uh-huh. Well, continue on, and I will play with this and get my volume up and listen to you. Yeah. So they're saying is the last U.S. tiger shrimp farm closed in Florida in 2004 without ever raising a successful crop. And this is the USGS fact sheet about the species. Reports of tiger shrimp in U.S. waters rose from a few dozen a year, 21 in 2008, 47 in 2009, 32 in 2010, to 331 last year from North Carolina to Texas. That's a big jump. Uh, Many captains are are, uh, speculating that uh, some uh, commercial fishermen are neglecting to report them now because they've come so common. They said they're seeing large numbers in the catch, multiples a night. Nobody knows what happened to their stock, but they have not been commonly caught in the area where the fish farm was. They said hundreds are caught along South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida after a storm hit a South Carolina ship shrimp farm in 1988, but none was reported in U.S. waters for the next 18 years. Six were reported in 2006 and four for 2007. What they're asking is if you find one, to freeze it and then... Uh, send it to them so that they can uh, learn a little bit more where they're coming from. Well, if we see any in Lake Michigan, I'll be sure to let them know. <laughs> yeah, that would be something, wouldn't it? Now, didn't, wasn't there a Nile somebody was putting in a, a shrimp farm? Remember the old mushroom farm they had there? I thought that was one of the last things before they tore it down was they, somebody was throwing a fish or some sort of farm there. I know they have started a um, actually a very profitable fish farm in Goshen. What kind of fish farm do you know? Uh they told me it's like a pan fish, a white, a white fish, uh, but they branched out. They were so so darn successful. They've actually got another warehouse they bought, uh, building, and we're building more tanks. Really? Yes, and um, part of it was a specialty market, uh, one of the type fish, and their key items is they could give you consistent size, consistent weight, and do it on a good schedule. Well, plus with yeah. the farming, you you. I don't know. I don't know what the regulations on farming, but it seems like you're you wouldn't be restricted by uh, catch limits. Well, all right, you're, there is no catch yeah. limit if you're if you're breeding them. Yeah, yeah like that's, say, one, that's consist- one of those projects I'd always love to been able to do. If I could figure out how to make it work, I'd I'd do fish farming. Yeah, consistent size, consistent consistency is probably the key there. Well, they were able to actually use the wastewater, mix that with other products, and then they had a liquid fertilizer that was also going like uh, great guns. It was just really good stuff. Hmm. Hmm, This is in Goshen? Yeah. I'll have to take a look and see what I can find out about that. Well, we go from fish farming to uh, there's no salmon fishing in the Yemen's, warns Yemen's Board of Tourism. Uh, I guess there was a movie. I I didn't hear about this movie, but a romantic comedy, Salmon Fishing in the Yemen. And uh, people from Yemen were kind of puzzled why the, the movie's name was that. It says they sense there is no salmon fishing in the desert nation. Um, uh, Yemen uh, is trying to take advantage of the, the title, and they're trying to set themselves up as a tourist location. They are trying to uh, say that they're, they're a great spot for many varieties of uh, activities, including paragliding and scuba diving. Now, have you heard of anybody scuba diving in Yemen? It's got a little coast there, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it does. I mean, the way I remember is that they, what, Yemen was where the terrorists were out of that attacked the was it the USS Cole. <laughs> so, and then if you look, the U.S. State Department has urged citizens not to travel to Yemen, adding U.S. citizens currently in Yemen should depart. If you've been following international 
uh, politics in the last couple weeks, the dictator slash president of Yemen just stepped down. And there's kind of a little mini civil war going on where you've got the uh, you know unemployment uh, for youth is over 40%. You've got parts of the country, uh, uh, it's either run by Al-Qaeda or Taliban. So I, I'm, I'm not thinking that's my primary location I want to go on a dive trip. Well, you figure Yemen, though, the territory includes over 200 islands, and it's really like to the south of Yemen is off the coast of like Somalia. Uh-huh. So Pirate. Because they got, they got plenty of water. Yeah. Pirate territory. Sounds like it. If they ever get that area under control, that'd be a nice place to visit. You figure there's got to be plenty of stuff down there that you can find. Yeah, looking at some of the pictures of it, some of the beaches look awful nice. Oh, yeah, there's tons of areas. I'm just looking at the map of it now. Yeah, because it's right across the Gulf of Aden is one, one part of the coast of it. Part of it's in the Arabian Sea. So, yeah, that could be a very heavy-duty dive area. Yep, they, they have the island of Socorita, they say, where they where you can sample frankincense trees. Somebody is quoted as saying it tastes like Christmas. You have the walled city of Shibam, nicknamed the Manhattan of the Desert. You got the global coffee mecca through the 1700s, even though it's fallen into some disrepair. And they said the capital of uh, Sanara, they have patterned brick towers that are quite beautiful when not riddled with bullets. When not riddled with bullets. Yeah. Sounds like downtown Detroit. Yeah. (laughs) Nothing says, come visit me, like a brochure. It says, they look good if you ignore the bullet holes. Mm. Yep. And they said, uh, the things to be concerned of when you're traveling to Yemen are the Al-Qaeda safe havens, tribal kidnapping of foreign tourists, civil unrest, Somali pirates known to refuel in the country, and the American predator drones. (laughs) Is this the attractions for that place? <laughs> those are said. Those are the things to watch out for. Uh, yeah, watch out for the American predator drones. Yeah. <laughs> <You don't. laughs> mm-hmm. The 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 face masks were quite popular for a while. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> Not. Oh yeah. I, uh, I'll, I'll think I'll have to pass at least for the next six months. Yeah, but your retirement dollar goes so far there. <laughs> yes. Wow. Oh, and and Mac, you're going to love this one. This one is from uh, La Jolla. And I always want to say La Jolla. La, Jolla, La Jolla. This one is the uh, Shores Association is considering permit regulations for scuba divers. Community planners want private scuba diving companies that are using the Kellogg Park to begin paying their fair share for upkeep, upkeep of the public amenity. The issue raised by some number of the La Jolla Shores Association is that scuba schools and tours are clearly using the beach for commercial uses, and they should be regulated by a request for proposal, similar to those required by kayak and surf school businesses. They're quoted as, if they're, meaning scuba companies, going to use a park for commercial purposes, there should be some benefit back, especially in these times when maintaining and improving the park has been so minimalized by funding cuts. Added they have board park member fees? Mary Chokley. What's that? Do they have park fees? That would be the support you'd give them as how much it costs to get into the park. Well, that's what I would think. But uh, I, I, La Jolla, I'm, I'm picturing this has got to be in California, isn't it? Yeah. Is that in your show notes? Because I didn't see any of that. Let me see. Uh, this is La Jolla, California. Throw on the curve, not giving us the notes in advance. Yeah, I, 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 yeah some of these are only for the chat room. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I just based it in the Skype for you. That's I okay. can't get it on my Skype, remember? Yeah. 
they said almost every scuba lesson taught in San Diego does its checkouts, final dives in La Jolla Shores. And that's according to Jerry Parker, scuba dive master with, short, with Sport Chalet, one of the companies offering private lessons. Um, they're pointing out that from now until October is a high season for scuba instructions, primarily on a weekend. They said it's not uncommon to see scuba groups totaling as many as 100 in Kellogg Park between 8 a.m. and noon. Could you imagine 100 divers all at one time taking lessons? Sounds like yeah. good level on a weekend. Or Gull Lake in the middle of the week. But like you said, Mac, I mean, why don't they just charge a fee, like a parking fee or some sort of permit fee? Or maybe they already do. They yeah. want more. Yeah, maybe they do. I mean, it would just be simple saying, you know, if you're going to use this park for this, you pay an X dollar permit and then you can do it. Yeah, Gull Lake does that with the parking. You know, that's a nice way to do it. But the, the RFP, and, and request for proposal, I don't know. It kind of goes back to that thing where it's like everybody wants to protect the resources. Nobody other than them gets to use it. So what they're, what they're proposing, the permit process, ends up becoming a lottery system. It restricts the number of people who can be there at any one time. Yeah, one, one of the guys says it would be more difficult for all businesses to do business. It will increase revenue to, for the city, but none of that revenue will be spent at La Jolla Shores. How do you spell yeah. La Jolla? Uh, L-A space J-O-L-L-A. Uh, Watkins said he used to be in the kayaking and scuba diving business ashores, but he got out of kayaking after the city introduced its RFP and lottery systems. It says there were originally 16 kayak operators. Now there are five. Many jobs are gone. What benefit did La Jolla Shores receive from the kayak RFP? It's a 6,000-acre protected Thailand and marine life. It has caves, reef areas, kelp beds. Sounds like a neat place. That's probably why everybody's scuba diving there. But Yeah, the cove is 15 to 30 feet. Yeah, we have Lynch is talking about Monterey. He says he does all the check-out dives in the Bay Area, 150 average per weekend. Wow. I can see why looking at the pictures and stuff, though. Yeah, but they, they I don't know. They just, whenever you slow things down or restrict things, it doesn't seem like that ends up benefiting anybody. Yeah, I was trying to find where it said how much it costs to get in there. It doesn't, so. Yeah, I mean, it is California, so you never know. It, it could be free, and that could be part of the problem. Okay, and then uh, Montserrat is continuing its artificial reef program. When I think of Montserrat, I'm thinking that, you know, isn't isn't lava their artificial reef program? <laughs> Make a new island. Yeah, it just kind of like boils down and falls in the ocean. Uh, it said, Yeah. Uh, Montserrat, which is, uh, isn't that down there by uh, St. Kitts? Oh, oh, I was thinking of something like Grey Poupon. Oh. <laughs> they said, uh, though Montserrat is blessed with good natural reefs, volcanic activity has not only affected land, but also sea as well, making some reefs inaccessible. The artificial reefs we have built is the ideal habitat for both fish nursery and coral growth. It strengthens the marine eco- ecosystem by increasing the fish and marine life and population stimulate coral growth. They say oral growth, but I think they're talking coral. Um, yeah, because they, they had that eruption uh, a few years back. So what I'm imagining is that kind of altered the the bottom there, and, they, and it sounds like the, the reefs haven't been able to come back or they've been isolated from the rest of the island. The reef is comprised of 150, 150 reef units consisting of cast concrete structures, 
from one and a half feet tall to five and a half feet tall, from 50 pounds to 6,000 pounds. So it almost sounds like those reef balls. This is the project's second phase. It aims to continue strengthening the ecosystem and overcoming the stress placed on it. It's being funded by Overseas Territories Environmental Program Grant with plans to eventually introduce a tourist program for giving visitors a chance to get involved with the project. You know what, that, uh, what the nickname of that place is? No. It's called Emerald Isle of the Caribbean, or the Caribbean, and that's because of its resemblance to the coast of coastal area of Ireland and the Irish ancestry of its inhabitants. Hmm. Okay, then the last one in news is, let's see if I can get this one to come up. The Internet's just been painfully slow tonight. Yeah, the storm is hitting here now. Uh, let me tell you, if it's like it was over here, uh, it's been 45 minutes since we had the hailstorm, big as golf balls, and it is still lightning here, big time. Mm, good hail that big, huh? Oh, yeah. I thought it was going to break my back windows. Wow. Mm. Need to report that to the National Weather Service. Seriously, they want to see all, all reports of hail. Oh, really? Yeah. It came back. The reason we measured it is because it came on the uh, news thing at the bottom saying, look for hail the size of golf balls, and they were right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I'll have to remember that, Jim. I didn't know that they wanted that because I've had a lot of yeah. hail this year. This has been yep. one of the National more. National Weather Service asked yes, the weather spotters or anybody to report all all hail. Give them a rough idea of size, you know, or if they can send them email and photos mm-hmm. uh, because that's a predecessor to some updraft. And, well, it's an output of updraft, and updraft is often a predecessor to a severe storm. Oh, okay. The key Did word. you realize that the weather system is also changing their reporting for thunderstorms? They're going to have, I, I think it's four or six new classifications for thunderstorms. So when they announce mm. it to you, it means something for real. Because now if you say thunderstorm, what does that mean in my area? But when they start using the new terminology, it gives you an idea how big the thunderstorm area is going to be. If it's like a squall mm-hmm. line of localized for a mile to four miles to 150 miles. And it's supposed to be for pilots initially, but late boaters will also get value from it. Yeah, that makes sense. I wouldn't want to be on the lake with this going on. No, no. no. And then the last one in the news is the most important British vessel sunk off the Chinese coast that you've never heard of. This one's out of the China Real-Time Report. Uh, This is in response to the 100th anniversary of the RMS Titanic. So there's someone over in China hoping to take advantage of the notoriety for another British vessel. This time it's a submarine. The HMS Poseidon was a British military submarine that sunk in eastern Chinese water in June 1931. It went down uh, in different circumstances in the Titanic. Uh, the, uh, there is a, uh, someone over there in China, he's making a documentary uh, called The Poseidon Project about the British sub. Uh, so they're, they're showing the movie in, to small groups this week in Shanghai. The film narrative tracks Poseidon's brief time frame from its launch in England to its arrival at British naval outpost in the Lainha Peninsula in the Shandong province. Explain, the film will explain how surface maneuvers on June 9, 1931, the Poseidon collided with a Chinese freighter with a tear in its starboard side. The sub went down in just four minutes and dragged much of its crew 120 feet below the surface. Uh, they're said to have nicely executed drawings and other artwork in the film to illustrate how a small group of five submariners, including one Chinese boy, made it to the surface alive. Uh, the survivors were welcomed back in England as heroes because at that point for submariners, the film points out, escape plans were only theoretical. This is the first time I'd heard of this wreck. Is this 
Is this one that you'd heard of, Mac? Actually, yes. <laughs> this is one of the first times that uh, that boat, for example, was equipped with what they call the Davis Lung or the Davis Submerged Escape Apparatus. Uh-huh. And that was recent, and that was one of the first times they've actually used it, to my understanding. It provided the uh, wear with supply of pure oxygen and a canvas drogue. So when they got in it, they could go up and it would be slow enough that they could not embolize. Uh-huh. And they talked about that during that, eight of the crew used that device to leave the boat, even though two didn't make it to the surface. And one of the ones that did died. They said 22 of the crew died in total on that wreck because after it collided, it talked about the majority of the guys got off before she sank. So there were some who got off before it sank, and there were some who right. it sank and they were on the bottom and they went up. Yes. And the secret salvaging took place in 1971 by the Chinese, and they were using one of their new, what they call their newly underwater recovery units. This is back in 71. And then they had reference to it in a, in a Chinese magazine titled Modern Ships in 2005, and that's when they discovered the reference to that boat. Ah. Yeah, the, uh, he was saying here uh, he used Google Earth, British archives, and online forums to find the location of the sub. Uh, he bumped across, uh, against sensitive historical episode, including the previously unknown salvage by the vessel by Chinese divers in the 70s. Okay, yeah. Hmm. I wonder if we're going to have a chance to see that here, what kind of distribution that movie will have. It'd be interesting to see, yeah. yeah. Well, hold on a minute if you guys want to talk for a moment. I got one note that I want to have for this next section that I didn't bring down here, so I'll be back in just a minute. All right. Well, I was going to mention something talking about sunken vessels. Go right ahead. Could be a question saying, what is the greatest number of people killed in a wreck, shipwreck, that you know of? Well, the first two that come to mind is the uh, Titanic. Okay, and that was 1,523 dead. The second is the Lady Elgin. Uh, the Lady Elgin was on Lake Michigan. That was 1860. It lost 400, which is interesting. I was putting some information together for uh, another presentation, and I was just for fun went under discoveries for ship disasters because I was talking about the uh, Eastland. Oh, that's what I was thinking, the Eastland. And yeah. Eastland's 845. Yeah, the Eastland rolled over at the dock at Chicago, right? Yeah, that's the one that tipped over, but I was going to mention that one, and I went ahead and got pictures of it before and yeah. during. Then I got some of the salvage, and then the conversion of the uh, Eastland to the USS Wilmette, ah. which was originally called the SS-25. By the time they got it cut away, fixed up, tried to get it to the locks, they had to cut the nose off, to get to the locks, to get to the ocean. World War One one was over, so they brought it back into the inland lakes and used it for a trainer, yep. which is then the boat they used to sink the UC-97, the German submarine. Mm-hmm. So it sort of convoluted the way that happened. Quite an interesting history to that hull. It, it is. And, and when you think of the unique and weird things that happened on Lake Michigan, that's a big one. But yep. the interesting thing I, I thought was the greatest maritime disaster in U.S. history was the Empress. Is just, it was what? Is it the Empress? For in history, no. It's the SS Sultana. Two thousand four hundred people died. And that was on the Mississippi River near Memphis, Tennessee, mm. in eighteen sixty-five. Well, wow. so two thousand four hundred, and you're talking about the on a river. Yeah, on a river. On a river. Well, when you figure, and you're talking about the Eastland, everybody was twenty feet from shore. 
Yeah. But when she turned turtle, anybody on the side that she went down was inside. That's it. Yep. So can you, you guess the, how uh, was in the biggest you, chip disaster in the world? No, I, don't, I doubt anybody would have known that. Well, I mean, I didn't say what the number was for that one. Oh. That was just the United no. States one. Oh, no. you're, you're, so you're saying worldwide what's the most? What is the one most, for one shipwreck, what's the most people who died in it? Now, is that on one vessel or multiple vessels? Well, it was a, a vessel collided with one, and it sank. Huh. And I'll tell you, it's relatively recent. It's 1987. Can you guess how many people perished in that fiasco? Well, if, you, if it's more than 2,400. <laughs> it is. Want to gotta keep going up a little bit? Let's say 2,900. Nope, a little higher. Let's say, what's that, make 31? Higher. Doesn't sound like I'm doing too good. 36? Higher. 4,000? Higher. <laughs> oh, wow. And you would think you'd remember this. Yeah, you would, you'd think so, especially, I mean, I was, you know, I was an adult at that time, so I should. Yeah, 4,341 died in the collision of a passenger ferry from the Philippines All with right. an oil tanker called the Victor on December right. 20th, 1987. The resulting fire and sinking left an estimated 4,341 dead. I remember I remember the news about the passenger ferry in the Philippines, but yeah, how quickly we forget. You know, we, we would have thought of, of something local, but how quickly we forget. Well, it wasn't Americans, and they didn't have the PR. Yeah, four thousand yeah. people. You know, and I, you know, now that you mention it, I can remember there was something about a passenger ferry because whenever I hear passenger ferries, think you uh, sink. Those always tend to be the worst. I think it's just because the people are least prepared. You know, it's a short yeah. hop. Yeah, there's. Well, sorry, John. Go ahead. I was just going to say they were showing pictures on the news last night uh, from the duck boat that got run over by a barge, and duck being not a you know a duck blind flat bottom sailboat, but one of the boats that is an amphibious where you take a tour along the streets and then it drives out into the river. Uh, this one was in Philadelphia. It got run over by a barge, and two people were were killed by it. They were actually showing the video of the barge running over the boat and forcing it under last night uh, on NBC News. And, and this was recent? Uh, it happened last year, and they were it was in the news again last night because they had released the video. They intended to use it in court in the civil lawsuit. The uh, operator of the barge, the tugboat operator who ran them over, received a year in jail for criminal negligence. Wow. Well, what's amazing is when you go through the Eastland, all the lawsuits came to nil, nothing. All the survivors got were zero. Well, they even talked about that with the Concordia wreck, uh, that usually when you pay for uh, a trip on a boat, they've got certain limitations that they apply, and they're usually attached to the ticket. So they said if you book a cruise, you want to really be aware of what they cover, and you might want to buy supplemental insurance if you're concerned. Well, that that does it for the news. Wow. Next section. Maybe we should have a, a name for this one, but this is uh, called the Scuba Mailbag. Uh, this first one was actually from, and it seemed like it was a busy week. We got three of them all together. But this first one was from Mark Potter, and uh, he says, Hey, Darren and Mac, many thanks for the many hours you have invested in this great podcast. I also appreciate all the sacrifice days spent doing research for the subject matter and lest I forget the many hours of trash removed on your ecology dives, you guys are kindred spirits. As I start this series over for the third time, I was commenting to my to a dive buddy how much I have enjoyed listening during the long drives and while tinkering with dive gear and how I could 
if I would buy you a post-dive lunch and a cup of coffee in appreciation for the show, then I thought I can. So please uh, accept a small token from the Northern California chapter of Scuba Obsessed West. Keep diving until you can no longer crawl into the water. So what he did, Max, he sent us two uh, California Dive Flag stickers and uh, a gift card to uh, Starbucks. So we've got post-dive coffee. (laughs) Well, thank you. (laughs) So thanks, Mark. We appreciate it. We're glad that you're listening. Uh, And it, it certainly wasn't necessary, but much appreciated. And then uh, we had another letter. This one was, uh, if you remember, well, Mac didn't, but uh, Jim, if you remember last week, we had the uh, feature on the Aquara Springs. Yeah. Uh, He said, I loved your feature on the Aquara Springs on your show the other week. Here's a link to some pictures taken there. So he sent us some photos, and we'll post those photos in the show notes for this week. And then in the chat room, I have posted a, a photo of the site. Uh, he said, uh, to clarify the comment in the glass-bottom boats, the boats have props, and they don't want you to get too close for the boat's safety. In fact, they make us wear these yellow skins to better stand out. They ask us to wave at the people in the glass-bottom boats. It's rather fun. And that is uh, David uh, Gaskill. So thank you, David. Appreciate that that information. And if you remember, we couldn't. We were kind of puzzled why they were trying to keep them, the divers away from the glass-bottom boats. And uh, that's what he's saying. So he, he's a diver down there. Those yellow skins sound pretty neat. Yeah, they, they, they neat. Did, did you see the picture of them? Yeah. 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 It was, that, it was, that show up pretty nice. Yeah, I, yeah. I could see where yeah the people in the glass bottom boat could see you down there doing it, and the water was really clear. It was it was that was nice clear water they were diving in. Well, I, I was thinking those looking. yellow skins for some uh, some of the water we dive in because it certainly makes your uh, dive buddy more visible. Darren, what did you mean that, by that comment about? The divers doing it? I, I'm sorry. What did you mean by that? <laughs> no, they they were saying that uh, last week in the article they were trying to keep the divers away from the glass bottom boats. Well, I heard that right. It just when you were explaining the yellow suit, you said, "See the guys down there doing it," and I didn't know what they oh, were doing. Oh no, the <laughs> whatever. So you can see the divers. So if you're in the <laughs> yellow, the, I, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think I was in, trying to imply the divers were were doing anything like that. Anything risque? Risque, yeah. Uh, Mac, you missed the comments in the chat room earlier. You'll have to go back and, and reference those. Yeah, but so so thank you again, David, for sending that clarification. The photos are great. Again, we'll put those in the show notes. And then we had a question from Google+, Plus, and this one's for the chat room. If you know in the chat room, have any ideas, or Mac or Jim, uh, from Google+, Plus, it said a question, what is the best place to purchase a prescription mask? He said, note that the prescription is complex, and I'm willing to pay to get it right. We should ask uh, Ken and Larry. They just bought and received brand-new prescription masks. We'll have to see how they like them and get a recommendation. Yeah. I I don't use a prescription mask because I usually follow Mac and can't see anything anyway. Yeah. Thanks very much. <laughs> yeah, it's like vision is overrated. Uh, you know, I haven't done the prescription math thing either, but I do know about four or five divers who have, and many of them have actually gone right to their, uh, I don't know what you call it, optical places where you, where they get optometrist and they bring the mask in and they'll actually, they've got a supplier. Most of your op- optometrist will have a supplier who will be able to do it. Uh, when you go to your dive shop, you just have to let them know that you want to get a prescription in the mask, and they can lean you to a lens and frame that's designed for it. They're usually a little bit more, but 
I don't think they're anything that outrageous, but that's before you get the the prescription in it. Uh, let's see what it, what the chat room has to say if they have anything. Nothing on prescriptions. I figured Dave might weigh in, but he's busy talking about his dives. Yeah. This guy's going for 50 dives in a month. Yeah. Yeah. This weather today, especially, we had 84 degrees outside. I am so ready to get in the water. Now, now, Mac, tell me you've got some dives in. Nope, I've been gone. I'm getting ready to reinitiate myself to water Monday. We got jumping this weekend. Now that's the opening time for the turbine. So uh-huh. start next week, you got to be hard pressed to keep up with me. Oh, so, gosh, yeah, no, I didn't. I didn't get any diving in this this last weekend. It just didn't work out. And Jim, did you get anything in? No, I did not. Oh, this wow. was a training week uh, for the tall ship to bring some new crew aboard. And I actually did get out and go sailing for the first time in two seasons. Missed it all last year because of the work we were doing on Max Rack. But I got out to go sailing this year, so that was nice. So this is on Friends Goodwill. Is that we, this type of sailing you got in? Yeah, Friends Goodwill. Yeah. We were out training new uh, new sailors, new people to help crew the boat. So we were took them out and did some man overboard drills with them. Now, man overboard, is that like keel hauling? Not quite. Not quite. Not quite. You have to go overboard to get keeled hauled, but uh, no, we just have a couple of weighted buoys we throw in to simulate a man going overboard, and we have to turn the boat back around, bring it back around into the wind, drop the sails, and recover these people within a fixed amount of time in order to get a Coast Guard certification for the year. So this was our start our first practices. So you do the practices before you actually do the certification? Right. Ah, that makes sense. And, uh, and you have to do that every year? Yep. We have to get Coast Guard certified every year. So what is the, what are they certifying, your ability to do it or the boat's seaworthiness to meet that skill? Both. Okay. They do a full inspection of the vessel. They count life jackets. They check uh, life jacket, uh, make sure the fabric's not frayed, all the straps work, that kind of stuff. They go over the fire extinguishers, uh, the uh, life vests, the... Um, lifeboats, uh, inspect the EPIRB, radio, bilge pumps, electrical system. They just basically do a full Coast Guard inspection of the vessel every year. Dockside, they look at the paperwork, they look at the maintenance records. Then they take you out and you know you have to perform certain maneuvers within a given time frame uh, to be certified as a, uh, a charter vessel for carrying passengers. Excellent. Well, that's, it sounds like a good thing to make sure a boat's able to do. Yeah. Did you guys talk last week about the uh, Jim's new position? No, I was just about to bring that up. Uh, I think that happened since last Thursday, didn't it? Yeah, actually, that happened last uh, Saturday, and uh, I became president of the Southwest Michigan Underwater Preserve, which is the area from the Michigan shoreline up to north of Holland, and uh out to 130 feet or five miles, whichever is less. And we've got a number of shipwrecks and different dive locations there where we're looking to find more and mark more. And so I'll be trying to promote diving in the preserve, diving in general, and uh, hopefully partnering with dive shops, charter operators, museums, uh, local municipalities that have boat launches, you know, trying to uh, find ways for win-wins. Uh, we've got an interesting one this weekend. One of the local charter operators 
uh, has donated his boat for the weekend to go out and set some buoys on some of the local wrecks. You know, he benefits because the wrecks are buoyed. He can just pull up, hook on, doesn't have to worry about dropping anchor or snagging his anchor in the wreck uh, or damaging the wreck when he takes divers out there. And we win because it gives us a free ride out to the buoy and a nice stable platform to work off of to uh, set the buoy and get it set for the year and inspect it. So those are the types of uh, win-win combinations we're, we're working on. Another one is talking with local dive shops to see if they'll provide a discount uh, to members of the preserve, which would encourage people to buy a preserve membership because they're going to get a discount back at the dive shops. and you know They can save more money at the dive shop than what they'll spend for their preserve membership, but it also gives us money to go out and buy buoys and buy rope and buy chain and print materials and do other things that will help the the preserve to grow and be more successful. You know, uh, the preserves in Michigan get no funding from the state. So we've got to do everything as nonprofit organizations and raise the money ourselves. Now, how many preserves are there in Michigan? Oh, I there's want to 11. Say between 11, I was going to there's say 11. 8 and 12. Yeah, and there's another one being being uh, in the process of getting set up just north of ours, which would be the West Michigan Preserve. Yeah. Now, that was one I was kind of surprised didn't already exist. Was there a reason just that it never got organized and established. Okay. Uh, you know, so now we're they're working their way up and around, and uh, you know, they, there is a Michigan Underwood Pre- Underwater Preserve Committee (MUPC) that is the overall, um, I want to say, governing body, but there's no governance. They're the coordinating body for all the preserves, and we all contribute to the Michigan fund, and they go out and promote all the preserves equally. Uh, but then there's the local preserves who, you know, like Southwest Michigan, who hopefully we can partner with the tourism councils and uh, chamber of commerce along the way and help to bring more business and diving industry, diving business into the, the local areas. Sounds like an excellent, excellent program. So it's something, you know, especially with turning MaxRec over to them, it, you know, it, it's a larger body. It's a state-recognized body. Um, you know, they've got more resources than we as a local dive club or a group of divers did to uh, continue the investigation of MaxRec and see if we can truly identify what it is. As a side note to that, if anybody's interested, I see you're busy Sunday and I'm jumping on Saturday. But uh, Mr. Bob is going out. He's got a couple of guys already on board for looking at the Rockaway this weekend. Yeah, now, is that the Rockaway? He he called me just before the show and uh, said it was the Ironsides we were going to go diving on Saturday. Now, he had said I, before the Rockaway. Okay. Yeah, right. I understand it's the Rockaway because it's, it's well, a and, and that season. makes And that makes more sense. I, I need to call him back because when he said Ironsides, I'm thinking, wow, that's, you know, yeah, I, I've been diving all winter, but that's a deep dive for you know, many of us who probably haven't been that active, you know, for first lake dive of the year. Yeah, and we're looking at a trip uh, Mother's Day potentially out to uh, Max Rec mm-hmm. with a couple different boats. Yeah. N- now you'd mentioned that uh, the Elsie out of South Haven. Uh, now that's just Sunday he's running. Uh, yes, actually he's running this Sunday. Um, he's taking, you know, I'm trying to line up some people to do the buoy work. And then he has a charter with open spots next Sunday. So if anyone is interested and wants to go, you know, pay for a charter and go out with them uh, next Sunday, 
they'll be doing that. This Sunday's going to be a working dive. You know, everybody on the boat's going to have to help with uh, rigging and setting the buoys. Is it Mother's Day next this Sunday's weekend? Uh, next weekend. Oh, okay. Dave said Mother's Day, and yeah. that got me scared. Hey, yeah. Dave, you just need to drive no, up this weekend, Sunday. Mother's Day is next Sunday. <laughs> next Sunday. Yeah, that's the 13th. Okay. So that that's good. So we'll get some uh, get some buoys. Now, the preserve, because I, I know when I dove on, I think, the Ann Arbor 5, that's a preserve buoy. Uh, I'm trying to think of what another one was. I think Ironsides was a preserve buoy. Now, what wrecks are the is the preserve booing? Is it as many as they can, or are there some? As many as we can. We've got to check the ones that are out there that have been buoyed in the past um, to see what we need to do to make those buoys functional again. You know, it could be hopefully like the uh, Havana may need nothing more than put some air in the subsurface bottle and then put a tagline on for the mooring. Mm-hmm. To bring it on up to the surface and create the mooring line. Uh, you know, Max Rec is buoyed. Havana was buoyed. Ann Arbor number five. Um, Rockaway. They're talking about possibly buoying the Verano this year. So we want to just uh, keep working our way up. And, you know, technically the preserve can only fund what's within the preserve boundaries, which is less than 130 feet. But Ann Arbor number five, you know, there's some private individuals who like to put a buoy on that because they dive it regularly. So so that distance at 130 feet, that's the bottom. That's 130 feet depth, right. That's the yeah. technically the edge of the preserve because that's the diving limit. Yeah. That are five miles out. That are five miles out. But that was left. whichever was less. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because on the, the Ann Arbor 5, you could say, I mean, the Ann Arbor 5 itself, let's deck at about 129 Right. I don't know. I think you can do the buoys that uh, you can do the uh, the prop at about a hundred, isn't it? It's a little it's a little deeper than that. I think the, the, yeah, the, 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 the I think the middle of the prop. How much was that, Mac? I thought it was one hundred and twenty-five. Yeah, it's a little deep because I know at one when the first time I dove on it, they said, "Oh yeah, that's no problem. You hit the deck at this or where it was where the because you know for those who don't know, the Ann Arbor Five is a uh, uh, was a ferry. Car ferry. Car railroad ferry. Car, railroad car ferry. Yep. And uh, it had been salvaged and it had, in, um, in floating it to, to, it was actually in two pieces in this this aft section. Uh, the bulkhead started to leak and it sank and it speared itself into the bottom. So it's literally at almost a 45 degree angle. And uh, so there's a chain that's buoyed that goes to the deck. So you actually, there is a shallower portion, but I think where that chain touches the deck, I want to say was about 120. Somebody had told me it was 109, but it's deeper than that. I think the shallowest part of the, the that wreck might be 109. Well, we need to get out and measure it this year so we can, you know, we're, that's one of the things we'll, we will show on the uh, preserves website and map, but, uh, you know, officially is outside of the boundary of the preserve. But it's still a great dive, and we'll certainly encourage people to do it. Yeah, certainly. So is there a set time for the meetings for the preserve? Uh, they've been in Holland on Saturday mornings. Uh, we're looking to do some rotating meetings, and we'll be talking to different uh, dive shops. Uh, the hope is that we can get a shop, a sponsor meeting. And again, that's what I would consider a win-win. You know, we'll have people able to attend who are local. We'll be able to bring new faces into the dive shop. And divers will become familiar with the shop. Uh, the shop will have a chance to draw some people in for a, a meeting morning and to see what they've got. And, uh, you know, to me, that's kind of the 
the coexistence or the synergies that we're trying to develop uh, where we all work together and support each other. Excellent. That's good. So that write-up you did when you sent out doing something like, it looked like the top 10 items. I thought that was very good and very comprehensive. Oh, thanks. Yeah, that was just, uh, you know, top 10 right now. That's not the only 10, but that's uh, 10 that are that have been surfaced for a while and people seem to have interest in. So we're certainly looking for more and uh, would love to get more divers involved uh, actively. Um, you know, we're, we're going through a reorganization period and uh, just want to get feedback from local divers and make this, uh, you know, an organization that certainly helps and supports diving in the area. Excellent. So let me just put a plug out here. It's dive, S-W-M-U-P. Dot org. If anyone wants to check out the website, and there's links there for sending email messages, etc. Again, that is dive, S-W-M-U-P dot org. And we'll, we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Oh, thank you, sir. So excellent. Well, that's that's certainly good news, and we'll have to keep up on that. Okay, and then uh, for this weekend, so yeah, uh, so Mac, you're you're jumping, and Jim, you're what working on the Prince Goodwill again? Uh, no, I'm working on the Get Wet this Saturday, and ah, take a class on Sunday. Okay, cool. So we're getting closer. This we we got to get out and Max wreck at some some point in time here soon. Yeah, I'm really curious to see how much of a hole the, the Mother Nature dug around that hole. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, did I tell you, Jim, that we had looked at the shipbuilding book? I had seen it down there when we were doing research at uh, Bowling Green, but uh, Larry has a copy of it, and we Ooh. did find those turnbuckles on two different ships. Really? And uh-huh. so those turnbuckles, the deep where they're located, everything, that should be the top of the boat. So that boat is actually full of sand. Yeah, that's what we pretty much anticipated. Those yep. turnbuckles would have been just below the deck. Yep, that's exactly what the picture shows. Yep. See, that makes uh, sense. What time frame were they installed, do you know? That was the book. The one we were looking at was ship construction, uh, and that was in the 1850s. Mm-hmm. And they could have been retrofit into an earlier hull to add stability. Yeah, because the initial, the, the initial one I saw was on a five-mast schooner, and I thought that was interesting, but this was on the regular smaller schooners. Mm-hmm. Now, did you see the turnbuckles anywhere? Yeah, that's what we're talking, turnbuckles that go from the sidewall to the top of the uh, centerboard trunk. Okay. Yeah, because that, yeah, that, that hold, was a... Hold the side of the ship, basically hold the side of the ship in. Okay. So then that was normal construction. That wasn't something done as a repair then. Correct. Or it could have been done as a repair to an older ship that had started to blow out in the middle. Could have been retrofit in there afterwards. Yeah. Well, it looks like that, that mid-1800s is where they were trying to figure out how to lengthen the boats and then add the stability. You know, my, my grandfather who built boats, that's the one thing he always said about the Great Lakes is that the, the intervals of the waves uh, were were unique in that you couldn't use o- ocean vessel construction on Great Lake boats. Correct. You know, waves the, are much, much, much closer together, like three to one. Yeah. And then the Great Lakes gets, you know, the, the three sisters, which are three very large waves that seem to follow each other. Yeah. Um, and that's been the demise of many ships. Yeah. You know, the, the great oceans get those rogue waves, uh, but the great lakes get the three sisters. Yeah. It's, it's funny you mention that. I had, as we speak yesterday, I was doing some research for another little item, and I was trying to validate a comment I had heard from a, from a diver and boater, shipper, 
back in the 70s that back then when I was working over at the Cook plant, we had MSU out there doing a lot of surveys, and they had a mid-lake buoy that recorded a wave strike of 50 feet. That, you know, I, I say that to people, and they look at me a little askew. So I went back and researched that. The OSHA, not OSHA, but uh, NOAA, and mm-hmm. recorded aspects using the new techniques in the last 40 years, if, if you were to look at it on the Internet, it'll say the average large wave on Lake Michigan is 20 feet. Well, that sounded real good, but I actually found documented episodes within the last four years of 24 and 25 feet waves in Holland and South Haven. I then found the calculation for the three sisters, which happened to be interesting. It's 2.2 times the height of the highest wave. So if you take that at 24 to 25 feet, which has been documented here, do two point, you know, two times 0.2, you're coming up with a little over 20 feet for the highest wave associated with the three sisters. Fifty foot will do damage to you. Yeah, it sure can. In yeah. 1945. And the thing about the Great, the Great Lakes waves, they are very, very vertical. Right. Uh, you know, 19- they're not long rollers. They're walls. Well, the tallest recorded wave for Lake Michigan in 1945, I found the, the reference for it, was 100 feet. Now, that's freaking outstanding because if you go by length of the waterway, highest control wind for sustained velocity for three days, you'll never get that high. But it was due to a freak storm. Mm-hmm. The second item is, what's the highest wave on the, on the, big, on the oceans that have been documented? Do you know? I, I would say again, over 100 tsunamis, feet. Say what? Excluding a tsunami. Yeah, excluding tsunami, freak wave. I would I would say over 100 feet. Well, more in the 50 to 70 range. Uh, would you believe 160 feet? Well, yeah, I would, but okay. And this one guy has a picture of his boat, and this is not the 160-footer, but they showed the calculations and the angle based on the photography of where that boat was, and that was 122 feet on that particular boat that he has a picture of. It's freaking awesome. They they were saying that the, the freak waves that people used to talk about and think they were BSing with the new satellite fixtures, they're finding out that freak waves are not unusual, but they can't get a curiosity for them to say how often they'll be in any particular area, and they can't predict them because they're not predictable. That's why they call freak waves. Yeah, the, the most the, interesting item I found was, what do you think the highest landslide event wave has been? in america i think i might know that one i bet you dollar you're not even close well th- that was the, the one that was in alaska in that bay wasn't it yes it was yeah they they had the landslide went from one and that that those are the most powerful wave forces are those landslides right. 1750 feet that was in alaska you are correct they yeah. had three boats right it out Three people survived it, and one of them is currently still living. But can you imagine a wall of water 1,750 freaking feet? Yeah, it's it's like what we learn in, in the dive class is that water is uncompressible. So when that big rock slab slides into the water, it's got to go somewhere. So they talk about some of the, the largest tsunamis are yes. are from that, and they've talked about that, uh, you know, the Strait of Gibraltar and, and some of those areas. They said that those are the type of possible waves they can have occurring there. Yeah, the underwater earthquake with the landslide on one of those underwater mountains like uh, the Himalayas is going to create one hell of a 
tidal wave. Yeah. Oh, man, I'm looking at the uh, weather report here, the radar right here. Yeah. And we have one nasty V forming right on the gas Van Buren County line. It's well, like the storm has split yeah. in half. Excellent. Fun time tonight. It sure will be. I mean, this thing is... It's got the handwriting all over it. There could be more. Wow. They talk about the hook bow echoes. Oh, yeah. What leads to a severe wind event. Oh, you can, if, if you, do you have motion on your, on your radar feed? Yeah. I'm I mean, you can see right that. Just, it looks like in just yeah. about 10 minutes it goes and forms that bow. Yep. You just see it forming right up and just splitting right down the middle, right over top of us right now. Glad it's moving east and it'll be east be over us very quickly. Yeah, we got our flashlights ready already. Uh, you got another band getting ready to nail you in a few minutes. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, maybe that's maybe it should be time for us to call it quits and. Not before the joke. The joke. You ready? I'm ever ready. How about chat room? We still have a few people in chat room. Oh, before we do that, let's uh, uh, thank everybody, everybody in the chat room for coming in. Uh, make sure you visit us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash scuba obsessed. You also visit the scuba obsessed website, www.scubaobsessed.com. We also ask that if you get the opportunity, go in there and place the pin on the map, our fan map. You go to on the website to the about page, scuba obsessed fans, and you can go into there on the map and place a pin. And we certainly appreciate that. Uh, we also love those uh, five-star reviews. We did get a review on TalkShoe. It's probably been there just a little bit. Um, let me see. This one was uh, from Paul Mall. It says, great program. Keep up the surface, uh, keeps the surface intervals bearable. Keep up the good work. See you in the chat room. So thank you, Paul. We appreciate that. Oh, let's see what else we have. Uh, seems like I'm always forgetting something. Doesn't matter how much notes. I got notes that go on for pages and pages. I've been doing a lot of work. I got some uh, exciting projects I'll have to show you guys. So uh, I'm getting excited. Just got a little bit more work to do. Get some free time. Maybe get those then. Oh, yeah. And Dave's talking about uh, the Cooper River. Uh, Rich Senewick from Diver Sink was putting together a Cooper River trip. And uh, I would be pitching it right now other than it's already sold out. So in October, we're going back to the Cooper River. It's a sold out trip. Uh, Dave, Rich, myself are going to uh, are going to be going on that, uh, and I don't know how many spots were there, Dave. Probably about eight on Captain Tom's boat. So we've got that one sold out, and I and I think the Moorhead tri uh, City trip and uh, Memorial Day is already sold out too. So, so without any further ado, we're going to go into the bad scuba joke. Hold on, guys. Okay. A scuba di uh, uh, scuba diver. <laughs> okay, here we go. A scuba diver and his forbidden love decide to sneak out of their country and start a new life. They decide to go by rowboat in the middle of the night. The diver's girlfriend was sitting in the stern of the boat. He was rowing in the middle. At one point, he said, Calf, I love you. She said, Pardon? He said, I said, I love you. She still didn't hear him. So he removed the oar from the lock, moved to the stern, resumed steering the boat from that position and said, I love you. She said, Oh, I love you too. But why are you standing there sculling? We do so much better rowing from where you were. He said, You're undoubtedly right. I just sculled to say I love you. <laughs> I, I think we scared Jim away with that one. <laughs> it just like dropped him right on off. Ooh. Must be a poltergeist around here. <laughs> Until next week, go out there and get wet. And stay safe.
recorded live. You are unmuted. Unmuted. You're unmuted, Mac. So like unmuzzled? <laughs> unmuzzled? Okay, that sounds right. So did you drop me or what? No, it it's that sounds like uh it Jim didn't get back quick enough and it killed the call. You there, Jim? Keep saying busy. Well, we got the joke in before we lost it. Oh, Jim said he lost power and internet. Oh, I can believe it. Well, I tell you what, I'm going to leave you be so I can turn my machine back off. Okay. I'll good talk. Night. That went quick. Yeah. Well, why don't we do the the end real quick here? <laughs> so, until next week, go out there and get wet. And stay safe.